0: Welcome to March of History. I'm your co-host Trevor Furness I'm here with my brother and co-host Brendan Furness. There we go, and we're going to continue the story of Julius Caesar. If you remember, or maybe you just finished the last episode, but we left off with Caesar having created his own private army in one of the Asian provinces, which is really the Middle East today, and fighting off an enemy army without any legal authority to do so, and then getting ready to return to Rome. Now, one thing I forgot to mention, when Caesar had first returned to Rome after Sola died, he was approached by a man named Marcus Lepidus, who planned a revolt against the Sola government because though Sola was dead, all of his supporters were still in power. Everybody that he had appointed still held the government position. And this man, Marcus Lepidus, had planned a revolt against them and invited Caesar to join, who obviously had been a victim of Sola's purges. And Caesar considered it, and he weighed his options. And though Caesar, throughout his life, which be shown to be a great gambler, decided that the gamble, in this case, wasn't worth it, and that the revolt was not nearly as well planned out as he was led to believe from friends before he had gotten to Rome. So he said no to the revolt. The revolt went forward anyway. It was a failure, and I believe that the people involved were put to death or or maybe more likely exiled. I don't know exactly what happened, but Caesar wasn't afraid to buck the system, but he knew, I guess, a good gamble when he saw one and a bad gamble when he saw one and decided that one was a bad gamble. But uh, just something I forgot to mention last time, wanted to throw it in before we get started.
1: I know you said in the past that Caesar's been known for his luck. Do you think that uh, played a factor in this? Yeah, sure. Caesar right. was
0: famous in his lifetime for his luck. And today you might say that that's almost an insult. Oh, you just got lucky. You didn't have skill in that case. You just got lucky and you won't get lucky again. But the Romans didn't see luck that way. They saw luck as you weren't lucky for no reason. You were lucky because you were blessed by the gods or a god or goddess. Specifically, Caesar felt that he was blessed, by, or I mean, he was the great. I don't know how many greats, but grandson of the goddess Venus was kind of his guiding star and was helping him through all of his problems in life. So he was famous for his luck, and Roman soldiers loved to follow a general who was lucky. Solo was actually considered extremely lucky, too. In fact, he even added on to his name later in life, Felix, meaning the lucky. So uh, it was common for Roman generals that were lucky to be famous for it, and the troops loved to follow them because they wanted to be part of that luck. And a reputation as an unlucky general could be equally as disastrous as a reputation for being a lucky general could be beneficial to you. But not just in warfare, Caesar was known to be lucky in, in just about everything he ever did.
1: Uh, so, do you think that assuming that the luck is just chance that things could have gone a different way in general for Caesar? Do you think that if he was, if things were slightly different, that threw off his luck and he wouldn't oh, necessarily absolutely. have risen to to the top?
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's what I always try and stress, not just with this history, but with a lot of history. We have a tendency to think that these things are almost preordained, that they were bound to happen. But a lot of times, that's not the case. And it could have gone a million different ways. And the chances that it happened the way it did are almost incredibly unlikely. For, I mean, think about how lucky he's been so far. He says no to the dictator Sola and like every other person, he should have been put to death, but he manages to escape. Uh, he catches malaria, could have died from that. Tons of people die from that even today. But he survives that, survives the death squads, escapes to the east, survives the pirates kidnapping him. And then, I mean, you'll see like he, he survives an enormous number of dangers throughout his life and is fortunate, not just in life or death situations, but in you know chances of politic and uh, elections and everything else. He takes great gambles and they usually work out for him.
1: Yeah, it makes you think how many seizures there could have been if back in that time it was so likely to, to die from one thing or another. There could have been a 1,000 seizures, but only one made it through the uh the It could cup. have been. and in, in fact,
0: you'll see a, a number of these guys. So he stands out in his career because he, he becomes a populare. And one of the things that he chose to do with his career is to borrow – Huge sums of money, massive Roman. A lot of Roman aristocrats on the make had big debts because they'd borrow money for campaigns, and you know, to let to act as if and appear as if they are already successful, and people would vote for them. But Caesar's debts were considered to be monstrous, even by those standards. And he would borrow money like crazy, basically gambling on himself each time that he would continue to get to the next level of the next level of government, basically. And when he got to the next level, it would he would appear even more promising. So then his creditors would lend him even more money, all with the idea that he would eventually reach the consulship. And after the consulship, he would then be given a governorship of a province, and then he could uh, exploit all the people of the province and suck them, drive their money, and pay back all his creditors and be rich. But he wasn't the sure. only one did this. This was a common practice in yeah. Rome. This is what they all did. But he did it just on a much bigger scale and borrowed far bigger than anybody else ever had. And a lot of people, when they first saw this, said that he'd be a flash in the pan, that he wasn't going to last. You know, he was borrowing too crazy. He was buying short-term acclaim from the people by using long-term debts. And it was going to be disastrous. And there were, as we talk go through this, you'll see examples of other people that also were like him, also popular by the people, also borrowed tons of money, also took big gambles. But it only takes one of their gambles to fail for the whole thing to collapse. And then they're in trouble, and they can't pay back these creditors.
1: Right. So uh, I was going to ask, what would be the repercussions if he he said he couldn't pay back those debts? I mean, say if it was Crassus versus, I don't know who else he borrowed from, but was there a standard if you don't pay your debts, are you thrown in jail, or are they just going to execute you, or or just seize, seize your property, or take what value they can take? So
0: the Romans, they didn't have a jail. There was no police force in Rome. There was no jail. or They had a temporary holding area for people, say, accused of capital crimes, but it was only temporary. And I mean, there's different stories about if people wanted to get you out of that jail, They would just go in the middle of the night and like a few of them and lower down a rope or they, they or, let you, know, you, out. you out. Yeah, it wasn't that hard to get out. And they really they didn't. The idea of a police force in a permanent jail was just a foreign concept to them. So if you did run afoul of the law of your creditors you would essentially be exiled from the city or exiled from all of Italy. And what they would say is that all people in Italy are forbidden to give you fire or water, meaning can't invite you to their home to keep you warm or give you food. And they would even be required to kill you upon seeing you. Now, that was the practice. The reality is that most times, at least you got to remember, every time we're talking about Roman people, we're typically talking about the upper classes because they wrote the whole history. There's not a lot of history from the lower classes. They didn't really write anything down, or if they did, it wasn't saved. So with the upper classes, they were typically, even though they were kind of put to death, it was really an exile. They were allowed to leave Rome. A lot of times they were allowed to take a lot of their possessions with them, and they had to go stay maybe in Greece, or they had to go live in Spain or or somewhere outside of Italy, which to us seems like that's not so bad. (laughs) If they did some bad things, yeah, yeah, they get to take all their stuff with them and explore the world. But Romans were very Roman, Rome centric, where they believed that life outside of Rome wasn't worth living, and that was almost worse than a death sentence to some of them.
1: Uh, so, it's, so uh, it's I interesting
0: guess back to your take... original question. Oh yeah, yeah. Go ahead. If he hadn't paid his debts, he probably would have had to flee Rome altogether from his creditors. And there are stories that not at this point, but later in his life, he actually had to. Physically run from his creditors to escape them at different times in his life.
1: Wow! Let's
0: talk about pressure. Bit of
1: a uh, degenerate, yeah. <laughs> He's, um, uh,
0: he was gambling, man. Gambled
1: on himself. Yeah, but yeah, it's funny to think that such a they feel so away from the action, they're not in Rome, like they're they're not where everything's going on. But at the same time, it seems that a lot of these guys, these uh, these big generals, spend most of their, their years. Off in foreign lands fighting so it's kind of ironic that on the other end of the spectrum if they have some great dishonor they'll also spend most of the time in foreign lands
0: no that's a good point i never thought about it that way yeah it is yeah they would go to other lands to conquer and really that was the kind of the grand goal of most roman aristocrats was to get an army and to fight some foreign enemy and game basically clout for your family and that would be done in foreign lands, and yet they didn't want to be exiled. But I guess if you're at the head of a Roman army, you still feel an attachment to Rome itself, and people are still paying attention to you and the things you do. Right. And you're surrounded by other countrymen, other Romans that are serving under you, all towards a common goal of defeating some barbarian foreign people that you look as lesser than Rome, and you need to bring civilization to them.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, you're still part of the community. Versus, I guess, the exile yeah. or not.
0: Yeah, the Romans were an intensely social people is the other thing. And that's actually worth explaining, the whole client-patron relationship, because I don't think I've touched on that yet. So this is, it's almost kind of like the mafia in some ways, like the godfather. You come to me on this the day of my daughter's wedding and gives out uh, different favors to people. That doesn't come from nowhere. That goes all the way back to ancient Rome. They called it patronage. So you'd have a patron, somebody like Julius Caesar, who's he's from a famous family, he's got a rising political career, and he would have a bunch of people of lower status or people that were on the make, but maybe they're the first person in their family to really do something, or just people of lower status in general or lower means, and they would come to him with any problems that he had. And it was his duty to solve them and help them in any way he could, and it was also their duty to him to help him when he called upon them. So he would spend all of his days helping them with their different problems, helping them get different positions and advancing their lives. And when he called upon them to vote or help spread the word to vote for him, they were expected to vote for him. And this wasn't just an informal relationship. They actually kept lists of who their clients were. And so the, the goal of every Roman was to acquire more and more clients. And the more clients you had, the more powerful you were. So that's why they would keep their doors open to these clients at all times of day. And they they even say that patronage is one of the reasons why the Roman Republic fell at all. Because as people became more and more powerful, and you would inherit all the clients from your father when he died, or in most cases you would, so they would get bigger and bigger. And eventually you'd have people that had entire kingdoms as their clients. And these wars between Marius and Sola, they had massive numbers of patrons, veterans settled throughout the empire, entire kingdoms that owed their existence to these guys when they were generals and, and defeated some foreign king and made these you know other guys kings in their place. So they could really call upon all these clients and wage private wars on each other. And that was one of the
1: reasons why the Republic collapsed. Yeah, it's interesting that it's, do you, how much of that do you think is caused by the fact that there is an inheritance of these patronages from it. yeah, was, was it was it point. just the oldest son? Because I've, I've heard that makes a big difference. Because wealth is inherited just to the oldest son, and then it, it accumulates. But if it's distributed between the kids, then it never really accumulates. It to uh, it gets spread too thin. So it's interesting that theme kind of um, I've heard with uh, Great Britain that made a big difference. That primogeniture somehow created more structure and hierarchy. So in that case, it actually helped them become more structured. But then today, they talk about income inequality and that it's uh, breaking down the middle class. So it's interesting that it's kind of like a uh, common theme. I mean,
0: I'm sure that did have an influence of these famous families would gather more and more each generation. But I don't think it was entirely just an upward spiral for these great families. They would come and they would go. And Caesar's family had been great at one time and now was living in the slums So it all depended on how to, if you had some greatly talented guy that had advanced a family and gathered a whole bunch of clients, and then his son was a moron, maybe his clients don't stick around too long. Maybe some of the more loyal ones do, and some of the other ones find some new great person to follow. And really, I guess the issue became that, because a lot of these guys, they gained enormous amounts of clients in their lifetimes alone. So it wasn't like They had inherited a whole ton of clients and then gained a few more clients in their lifetime, and it was like the straw that broke the camel's back. A lot of these guys, like Caesar, and we'll talk about Pompey and and Crassus, they gained these huge amounts of clients in their lifetimes alone. For whatever reason, it seems that during Julius Caesar's time, some of the most ambitious men of all the history of the Roman Republic were all born and living and interacting with each other at the same time. And Romans were known to be extremely ambitious. Like some of the most ambitious people you could possibly imagine, they were raised to be ambitious. But even among Romans, you know, all these guys were considered to be absurdly ambitious. They wanted ever more wealth, ever more clients, ever more glory, constantly competing with each other until they tore apart the fabric of the Republic itself. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I guess we'll, we'll go through the story and we'll figure out what we think in the end. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But to continue back to Julius Caesar, so he raised that army. He's in, uh, I think it's modern-day Turkey. He defeats that foreign army again. As I've said a bunch of times already, he had no legal authority to do that. And then he goes back to Rose to study with oratorical teacher or oratician or teacher of public speaking. And then he gets word that his uncle, who's a pontiff, who's among one of the priests of Rome. There's a few different priesthoods, like groups of priests. And the pontiffs were probably the main one. And he had died. And in his place, the other pontiffs had appointed young Julius Caesar to be the guy who would take over. And this was not uncommon. A lot of these pontiffs would try and kind of keep it in the family. It wasn't guaranteed. If Caesar was a slouch, they probably wouldn't have chosen him. They would have chosen some other family member or somebody else's family. But Caesar, it kind of marked him as an up-and-coming person, somebody that was going to stand out and had already stood out and made himself somebody of note. And so he hurried back home to Rome to be made a pontiff. The pontiffs would vary greatly in age because you would have the older pontiffs whose duty it was to teach the younger pontiffs kind of the ways of the priesthood. And it was a position that was held for life. So it's a great honor. It marks him out as somebody that's going to have a great political career. And most of the guys that were appointed pontiffs came from consular families so that's family that had past ancestors who were consuls and could expect to be consuls in their lifetime now whether it's because they were named pontiff that that helped them to become consul or whether it's because they were already somebody that stood out that they decided to make them a pontiff and of course they became consul i don't know but it was very unlikely for what they called a, a novus homo or a new man somebody with no family lineage to be made a pontiff
1: uh so Did I hear at some point you said Sola had appointed a lot of the pontiffs?
0: Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. So Sola had appointed a lot of these guys, a lot of the government positions in general, but the pontiffs as well. And so these guys were all appointees of Sola and they had chosen Caesar. So it's important. And Adrian Goldsworthy points this out in his book. It's called uh, Life of a Colossus, or it's called Caesar, Life of a Colossus. And he points out that this kind of shows that at this point in time, this Sola establishment did not see Julius Caesar as a threat to them. You know, yes, he had gotten on the wrong side of Sola, but they didn't really see him as a threat to the establishment in general. You know, they didn't see him as a revolutionary. So they did invite him into the fold.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because you also said that Caesar's past family had been appointed as pontiffs. Yeah, um, he,
0: on his mother's side. I think it was his so even, even then.
1: Even then, Sola did not see... I kind of have thought of Sola as an enemy of Caesar, but maybe it was just, uh, he was just one of the other names on the list. So maybe I'm um, uh, thinking that he was more of a, an enemy of Sola than he really was. Because I was just surprised that not only would Caesar get appointed, but also one of his past um, relatives. But I guess they're really just another family in Rome. Yeah, that's the thing. So Roman
0: enemies and friendships among the Roman aristocracy was extremely complex because they're pretty much all related to each other in some way or another. So you would likely have relatives oh, yeah. on Solo's side and you would likely have relatives on Marius's side. And maybe you chose Marius's side. You saw that it wasn't working out so well. So you called up, you don't call up, but you wrote to your letter or you stopped in on your relatives that were had chosen Solo's side and said, Hey, you guys got to speak to Solo on my behalf and get me on this side. People were always kind of defecting, switching sides. So Caesar was Marius's nephew And Caesar's father-in-law had been Cinna, who was Marius' partner in marching on Rome and would hold the consulship a bunch of times and become the de facto leader of the Marians after Marius died. And so Caesar, I mean, it's two strikes against him. You know, he's Marius' nephew, plus he's Cinna's son-in-law. But I believe it's possible maybe even that on, or I think on, on his mother's side, Caesar was connected to the Sola regime. And so when he was running and he was, in, he was hiding and he had malaria, a lot of his mother's relatives all petitioned on Caesar's behalf to try and get him, his name taken off the death list. So, like you said, I mean, you kind of made a good point. Yes, he was an enemy of Sola, but I mean, the way they saw a lot of those guys saw is he's just a boy, like leave him be, you know, he doesn't know what he's doing. So they didn't really see him as a threat to the Republic. He had an old family name that had been in the Republic for a long time, and he probably still had family members that were on a solo side. Oh, okay. yeah. And after Sola died, his name was kind of tarnished. People weren't really happy with him, and everybody tried to kind of distance themselves from him because he had been so ruthless, so brutal to everybody.
1: Yeah, so that's interesting. That I mean, I, I know today when I think of Sola from what I've heard from what you've said, I kind of get that feeling that he's not... Yeah, that is, yeah he's kind of a psychopath but that's interesting that even right after he died people felt a similar feeling about him because probably that means that when he was alive they also felt that way but they were just uh, too scared to uh speak up about it yeah i think that's definitely the case
0: yeah i mean right even yeah right after he died it seems that people kind of were like well yeah like even his supporters seem to be like yeah that went all a little too far, and we're not exactly big supporters of everything that went on, like all the killings and stuff like that, because I mean, a lot of his supporters were conservatives, and they didn't they didn't like not in today's terms conservatives they're conservatives of the Roman Republic, which meant they liked all the traditions of the Roman Republic, and they didn't want that to change and what Solo was doing was trying to boost those traditions by doing radically untraditional things like marching on Rome and pointing people to positions himself rather than having people vote and then appointing all conservative people thinking that like now i had this conservative lock on the government but he did it in an unconservative way and he basically said do what i say not what i do and thought nobody would take notes from, oh, so look march on rome so can i so and then actually on the way home as he's sailing home caesar to be named a pontiff they spot what looks like some pirate masts or, or sails in the distance, and Caesar just put all those pirates to death and could expect no mercy from any pirates that came across him and his ship. So he changes out of his fine senator-type clothes and changes into some commoner clothes and straps a dagger to his thigh, hoping to blend in with the crew and just be one of the people and then try and, I guess, strike when, when the moment was right to try and escape. It turns out that it was just trees in the distance on the shoreline, and and they had mistaken them for sails. But I just thought it was kind of a cool story how he was ready to change into regular people's attire and hide a dagger and get ready to kind of go into subterfuge mode. So once Caesar gets back, he goes into the law courts again. Uh, Again, he's attempting to prosecute, and this time it's a man named Marcus Ionkius, I want to say is how you say his name. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I hope I am because I like that name, Ionkius, in the extortion courts. And it's not certain what the result was, but the guy was probably acquitted, this Marcus Ionkius, and you don't have to remember that name. He's not important after this. I just said it because I liked the sound of it. But the reason why he's doing this again is to make a name for himself. He's challenging the solo regime. He's showing how eloquent he is, and he's supporting these abused peoples of the provinces that have been leached dry of all their money by these governors, and he's showing that he's a friend of these peoples, and so then they'll become clients of his in the future, right? He's now taken on their case in court when no other Roman would do it, and he's argued for them, and yes, he lost, but he put up a valiant effort and showed how he's an up-and-coming star. So even though he lost, they're like, well, let's stay close to this guy, because he might have lost for us today, but he might support us tomorrow when he's much more powerful. So he's gaining clients by doing this as well.
1: And so, I mean, what exactly are these clients asking for and what are they giving him? They are just giving him support. Yeah, yeah. they're saying that
0: basically this governor came in and just stole all of our grains, stole all of our gold, uh, stole all of our artifacts and did all sorts of corrupt dealings in our province. And it's not fair and it's all not legal, but he's getting away with it because he's a Roman. And so you know this is supposed to be against the Roman rules or laws, so let's take it to the Roman courts. Well, they can't really go into Roman courts themselves. They're not Romans. They're Greeks. But they can find a Roman who's willing to represent them, and that would be Julius Caesar in this case. And uh, what Caesar gets out of it is maybe later in his career, he needs something like money to borrow for a political campaign. Maybe donate money to him. Or an example is uh, Cicero, who I know I've mentioned a bunch of times already. I haven't really introduced him yet, but we'll do that this episode. He had a story where he helped the people of Sicily when he was their governor and they loved him for it. And then when he was running for I forget which position, I think it was consul, one of the things he was able to do to He didn't have tons of money, but he could call on the people of Sicily and say, hey, can you guys send me a ton of grain? Since Sicily grew a lot of grain. And then he gave it out to the people, and that made him very popular and helped him to win the election. So, you know, these clients could come in
1: handy in all sorts of ways. Yeah, yeah, yes. I mean, any time you have the support of more people, it's uh, it's more power. Yeah, and
0: they liked it too because now they had a guy that had clout and a name in Rome that they could call upon if they had issues. And I should explain— why there's so many people that can be taken to these extortion courts it's a common practice at this point in the roman republic that as i said earlier people borrow money throughout their career in you know, wild fashions all with the goal of becoming consul after they are consul they become a proconsul, which they don't have to be elected to they're just kind of appointed a province that they go out and govern and when they go out there they just squeeze the provincials dry of every penny they have. And what are they going to do about it? They're the, they're the conquered peoples. Rome has conquered them. If they could have defeated Roman battle, they would have done it already. So they really don't have much of a recourse. And it's becoming increasingly, increasingly unfair. And It's not healthy for the empire either to bleed your provinces dry and all for what, for it to pay these rich guys debts. And so these guys would come back and It was commonplace, but then it was also commonplace for a young, ambitious, flashy, and brave aristocrat like, say, Julius Caesar to take these guys to court over it. Now, most of the time, they'd be acquitted because they have more power. They're in a position of power, but it was still – I guess what I'm getting at is that it was common practice to extort at this point in time, and most of these guys did not get prosecuted. And it really wasn't the political will to prosecute them because everybody else knew that at some point in their life in in their political careers, they'd be doing the same thing, right.
1: Now, right. so three, I mean, eventually go ahead. maybe even Caesar will do the same thing, right?
0: It could be. yeah, no. I mean, and it, the level of hypocrisy of some of these guys is astounding, where they'll you know spend their younger days prosecuting the older guys that have robbed provincials provincials dry, and then the second they get the chance to go out and you know rob the provincials blind, they do exactly that. so. There's not much in the way of politicking for the good of the people. It's much more for the good of myself. And politics in Rome was intensely personal. It wasn't so much about strongly held political views or strongly held like communism or democracy or- uh, ideology. Yeah, of ideologies. It was much more what's going to benefit me personally. And that was kind of how they approached things. And so the other thing is that the, Ro- the way they administered their provinces, the Romans did not have a big administrative apparatus that would collect taxes and things like that. Instead, it was all privatized. So we had these groups called Publicani, who were groups of businessmen who had all kind of created maybe a corporation together, what you would call today. Obviously a little bit different, but that's essentially what it was. And they would bid for contracts and the taxes. So say they would bid on the contracts of the taxes of Greece. And they're basically bidding to collect the taxes from Greece. And so one bids... Uh, I don't know, a million sesterces, which is one way to count gold for them. or And then another group would build, oh, uh, we'll bid 2.5 million. Another one says, oh, well, we bid 3 million. And so eventually they'd get to a point where the other publicani decided that, oh, it's not worth it anymore and somebody would get the contract. And it was their goal to collect that sum of money from the people and then pay it to the Roman government. And then anything they could collect in excess of that was theirs to keep. And there was no limit. So, like their whole goal was to squeeze these provincials dry, and that's the governors would allow this and get their cut from it and work with them on this. And it would happen many times that the publicani would bid too high, and they simply could because they wanted the contract, and they simply could not squeeze that much money out of the provincials, and they'd be in trouble. So it's kind of a systemic issue in Rome that nobody's able to solve because the publicani have a lot of lobbying power. Just like today, in Washington, D.C., there's a lot of money in politics and a lot of the ultimate aristocrats in Rome are bemoaning the fact that money's playing such a part in Roman politics nowadays. And the publicani have a lot of influence and they pay for a lot of people's campaigns and they finance a lot of you know these senators' careers. And so they can get, it's difficult to have any votes against them to check them.
1: All right. so that, now back to... So, these private companies that are collecting the taxes, they're just collecting them and then they're giving them to the government. The, they're not keeping, they keep a, a part of it or? So, they, they, say, they
0: say they bid $2 million. That means that, and Rome accepts it and nobody else bids higher. That means that they owe the Roman treasury $2 million. Now, if they can collect $3 million, they get to keep a million themselves. So, they're, okay, <laughs> no, so they, they basically get
1: free reign over just to take as much as they want. Oh, yeah, it's absurd. I mean, there's no
0: cap on how much they can collect from the provincials. It's however creative and greedy you can be to to try and get this money out of people. Okay. And that's why, I mean, if you ever read the Bible and they say how the tax collectors are so hated, this is why. (laughs) This kind of stuff is why the tax collectors back in those days were so hated.
1: Yeah, that almost seems like even, I mean, yeah, of course, they're hated by the people who they're collecting the taxes from, but. You would think that the government would not even allow such a system that basically you have these private companies that are collecting taxes. they're they're sending over the bid to the government, but then the rest of it, they keep themselves. So they're still essentially uh, collecting taxes, which could lead to some, what do you call it, like a a fiefdom or something that arises within the the state that could cause a disruption. So it's surprising that they would even allow that.
0: Yeah, and the
1: reason that they
0: would allow that is the Romans, especially early on in during the Republic, was always afraid of having some government-heavy uh, administrative apparatus that spanned the provinces and did all the governing because they just thought it would be too costly. They felt that a foreign empire could be so expensive that it wouldn't be worth it. And so if they could have private people do it and keep the government's hands off of it and not have to worry about those kind of expenses, they were happy to do that.
1: Yeah, that surprises me that they really took like a hands-off distributed approach to governing because I I could see, even today, it'd be tough to do that. Even with the technology that we have to make the world smaller, it's tough to enforce any kind of uh, rule of law or regulation on places that are far away. You would think that they would need to take an active approach to to governing, but that's, I guess, maybe they took an active approach militarily, but then civilly, they, they stepped back.
0: Yeah, that's definitely accurate. The military was definitely run by the government, but the civil running of provinces, at least for much of the Republic's lifetime, they really didn't want any part of that. They just felt that it would become too expensive and too large of an apparatus and too uh, Byzantine and be a lot of, uh, say, costly. It would just be a costly venture to have that kind of network of public agents and who was going to pay for them all the government had to pay for them all and they didn't want they felt that would bankrupt them in the end so they'd much rather just we can have somebody else leash the people for us and send us money each year we're happy to do that we don't need anything more than that but uh moving back to caesar that scandal from bithynia is still dogging him that's the one where they said that he he traded Well, he did some favors. Uh, I think they said he traded his anal virginity to the king of Bithynia for a fleet, is is the only way to put it. And so this is is still kind of dogging him in his political career. It doesn't seem to have held him back too much, but people love to crack jokes about it. And the Romans loved, uh, they said the Romans would rather lose a good friend than miss an opportunity for a joke. So even some of these guys that are friends will just ruthlessly roast each other in, in Senate meetings. And it's actually quite entertaining to read. And so, to give you an example, later on, Cicero, who we're talking about again, or Caesar is giving a speech in favor of the Bithynians. He's actually representing the daughter of King Nicomedes, and her name is Naya or Nysa. And so he gives a speech recounting his debt to the king, and that was the king that he spent the time with to get the fleet from Bithynia. And this prompted Cicero to say, quote, no more of that, please. When everyone knows what he gave to you and what you gave to him, <laughs> meaning uh, it's, it's a sexual innuendo. And so you can imagine Senators laughed and a man as proud as Caesar probably didn't like that too
1: much. Yeah, I mean, I'm just impressed that he got a whole fleet from that. That's pretty <laughs> astounding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and so I guess now
0: is a good time to introduce Cicero because he's going to be a key character Uh, in the story and so this kind of episode we're gonna i'm gonna introduce a number of key characters so that you guys know who he is for the future or who they are for the future and they're gonna play key parts in caesar's life it's the first one who i've talked a bunch about already and probably should have introduced already but his name is marcus Tullius cicero and he's considered one of probably the greatest orator of all time bar none he's just considered to be the most eloquent public speaker of all time He's a great Roman statesman, but he was a phenomenal writer. He was fascinated by philosophy and all of this. And he was a new man. He didn't have any political ancestors that had been great people. He actually came from the town of Arpinum, which is outside of Rome. Ironically enough, the exact same town that Marius came from. So this town of Arpinum is just putting out some of the greatest people of all time, in their little town. I think just north of Rome. So he was considered an outsider by the more snobby people. Not even a Roman. He was a citizen, but they just said that he wasn't even born in the city. He's not really a Roman, which always hurt Cicero, since he always wanted to be one of them so bad. And Cicero is a unique guy because he really seems more like a modern person than most of these people do. And some of the guys like Caesar and uh, some of these other people we'll talk about—they can seem so ruthless at times. Like when Caesar has all the pirates crucified and has all their throats slit that you're reading about them, and they seem like a recognizable person, they seem like a relatable person, then they do something like that, and it's like, oh my god, I don't recognize this anymore. This is not something I could ever imagine myself doing. Well, Cicero seems more like the modern person than anybody I've ever read about. He was afraid of violence, he didn't like the military, he did his compulsory military service to get into the Senate and wanted no more to do with it. He was kind of a homebody, he didn't like to leave Rome, but he made his name by being an unbelievable public speaker, specifically in the law courts, and made himself a sensation that way. And he was actually the original one that had gone to Rhodes to train with that instructor of oratory that then Caesar went to go to as well. Cicero was so good at public speaking that it was said that when he was a boy, fathers of the other classmates would come to the school when they knew that Cicero was gonna give a speech just to hear the boy speak. He was considered to be a phenom even in, in his earliest years.
1: Well uh, Yeah. Yeah. I wonder what it is about him that you know, made him such a good speaker. I guess he was just good with the language in general. But it's, uh, yeah, it would just be interesting to see him, which you can't in person. But I wonder how he would compare it to uh, today's or more recent great speakers.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. There's actually something where he talks about how, I guess, the Romans would never have notes for their public speeches. It would be off the top of your head or not off the top of your head. You would might you would have created a speech beforehand, but you wouldn't read off of anything. You wouldn't have a teleprompter. So they would have these mental methods to memorize their speeches. And it would be you would associate the different parts of your speech with different images in your head. And it would all be so the example that I heard was, Okay, so you walk into your house and you see the vase to the right on the table. And then you walk further and you go into your living room and, and each part, and each thing that you see is what reminds remind you of a different part of the speech. I don't know exactly how it works, but it seemed to work for these guys. I think it's like a fascinating thing that's definitely not taught today, but they were able to remember huge parts, huge speeches, but via this method and I'm sure others. And Cicero, when he's in the law courts and a young man is actually, he's doing incredible, he's making a name for himself, but he, he suffers like a, a physical and a mental breakdown almost from working so hard and working so much. Again, something that seems somewhat relatable to you know today's discussions on mental health and everything that you'll read about Caesar and he just seems inhuman because this man never seems to get tired. He never seems to have any kind of mental breakdown. And uh, Cicero goes on this kind of vacation or he travels around the east and he travels to Greece and he visits his friend Atticus over there in Athens and he goes to Rhodes and he trains with that. A public speaking instructor, and he tours the East and kind of regains himself and regains his confidence. And the public speaker gives him a a way to speak without straining his vocal cords so much. So he learns a new way to speak, a new way to uh, get his point across. It's even more effective than before. And he returns to Rome even better than he was before, but he takes about a year off so you would think uh, you know, he must have felt like he was quitting at the time when he had to leave, and he couldn't handle the stress and the pressure. But he comes back stronger than ever after taking a year off, and that's what I mean by he just seems more relatable than some of these other guys.
1: Yeah, I wonder, you know, if he was, if he seems more like a person from today back then, if today he'd seem like someone. Well, maybe <laughs> I wonder if someone in the future, but we wouldn't know. But yeah, I wonder if he would be seen as kind of like uh, too weak or too soft or something. But then, again, probably just as it was back then, since he's so good at speaking, they, they overlooked those things.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, it, and that seems to be the case in his time. Like, he's definitely softer than a lot of the other guys. He didn't like fighting the military. The violence scared him. But it seems that he, his, his speeches and his words were so eloquent that people looked past that. And he was also king of the character assassination. So he may have been uh, timid when it came to physical acts, but socially, he had no problem standing in front of huge crowds of people and just assassinating somebody's character like it was no big deal. So he had some social bravery in that way. I don't know if you call that bravery or not, but he's got a lot of funny quips that he would say, like the one on Caesar. But a lot of times, because he's not this military guy, because he doesn't have that much power, it gets him into uh, more trouble than it's worth. His, his mouth does.
1: So you, you don't think it was worth it in the long term?
0: No, I mean, it's definitely worth it. If he didn't have his silver tongue, then he wouldn't have gone anywhere in life, but he didn't know when it yeah, showed up yeah. either. Right. So, I mean, he's just, a, he's an interesting character that way. And he will actually rise up to become consul eventually. And him and Caesar have kind of a, uh, I don't know, maybe a, almost like a frenemy type thing going where Caesar's always trying to make Cicero a closer and closer friend as they get older. And Cicero's always, like, he likes Caesar, but he's just not so sure what Caesar's aims are with the government and everything. And so he kind
1: of keeps his distance. Hmm. And Cicero, his goals are not to become the first man in Rome, but rather what to preserve the Republic or something like that.
0: Yeah, he he's considered the king of the moderates. He loves the republic to its very core and he wants to preserve it. He doesn't he's not so personally ambitious as a man like Caesar, but then again, nobody is. And he's more about he just loves the republic. He loves the routines of the Republic. He loves the way it works. He, he loves running to magistracies, But he'll display this kind of thing where he thinks that if he is doing well, the Republic is doing well. Anytime in life that he's doing bad, the Republic's doing bad. <laughs> and uh, yeah. he, he conflates himself with the Republic.
1: Yeah, that is interesting.
0: So I'm going to read a little bit, a little uh, passage on uh, the Roman law courts and Cicero from uh, Tom Holland's book, Rubicon. And so Tom Holland says, about the law courts. Close attention to the minutiae of statutes was regarded as the pedagoging strategy of a second class mind, since everyone knew that only quote, those who fail to make the grade as an orator resort to the study of the law. End quote. There's a quote within a quote. So Holland continues Eloquence was the true measure of forensic talent, the ability to seduce a crowd, spectators, as well as jurors and judges, to make them laugh or cry to entertain them with comedy routine or tug at their heartstrings, to persuade them and dazzle them and make them see the world anew. This was the art of a great law court pleader. It was said that a Roman would rather lose a friend than an opportunity for a joke. Conversely, he felt not the slightest embarrassment at displays of wild emotion. Defendants would be told to wear mourning clothes and look as haggard as they could. Relatives would periodically burst into tears. Marius, we are told, wept to such effect at the trial of one of his friends that the jurors and the presiding magistrate all joined in and promptly voted for the defendant to be freed. (laughs) Wow. It says, perhaps it is no surprise that the Romans should have the same word, actor, for both a prosecutor and a performer on stage. Socially, the gulf between the two of them was vast, but in terms of technique, there was often little to choose.
1: So, I mean, Rome's known... For its laws, that's one of its great achievements. So it's, it seems odd that acting and kind of these ridiculous displays played such a big role in their rulings in the, in the courts.
0: Yeah, the Romans are filled with contradictions because they were all about Roman order and, and they did believe that their gift to the world was laws and administration. The Greeks knew philosophy and art, the Egyptians knew something else, the Romans knew law and order and administration. They, Romans knew how to govern. It was in their very bones. And it was their duty to spread that to the world. But like you said, I mean, they, uh, some of these law courts seem like laughable. Like Marius is crying to such effect that the jury starts crying and, and the judge does too. And they're all like, all right, these guys are innocent because, because they don't like to see Marius cry. <laughs> like, that's
1: crazy. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous.
0: Now, Tom Holland says about Cisco, and I'm going to read a number of passages that Holland says about these different characters because he's described them so well. It says, quote, like Marius, Marcus Tullius Cicero was a native of the small hill town Arpinum, and like Marius, he was filled with ambition. There the resemblance ended. Gawky and skinny with a long, thin neck, Cicero was never going to make a great soldier. Instead, even from his childhood, he planned to become the greatest orator in Rome. Sent to the capital as a boy in the nineties nineties BC, Cicero had such a precocious aptitude for rhetoric. That the fathers of his fellow students would come to his school just to hear him declaim. The anecdote can have derived only from the infant prodigy himself, and even to the Romans, who never regarded modesty as a virtue, Cicero's conceit was something monstrous. Not unjustified, however, his vanity was as much prickliness as self promotion. A deeply sensitive man, Cicero was torn between a consciousness of his own great talents and the paranoia that snobbery might prevent others from giving them their due. In fact, his potential was so evident that it had been spotted early by some of the most influential figures in Rome. One of these, Marcus Antonius, not the Mark Antony that we know, but he's either his uncle or his father or some some relative of his continuing, provided the young Cicero with a particularly encouraging role model. Despite coming from an undistinguished family himself, Antonius's powers of oratory had succeeded in elevating him to both the consulship and the censorship, and a status of as a leading spokesman of senatorial elite. So that's Cicero, and he's going to become a big character in this whole story. So yes, to end where to remind you of where Caesar's at because we talked a lot of things that aren't Caesar this episode. He's returned to Rome now. He's become a pontiff. This has marked him out for a great career, and. When we return for next episode, we're really going to talk about the start of his political career, and it's going to coincide with the launch of Spartacus in the Great Slave War. And I'm sure most people have heard of Spartacus. If not, there's a great show on Stars. It's actually on Netflix now, too, uh, about Spartacus. That's excellent. Not always historically accurate, but still pretty good. And Spartacus is, is a famous slave that held a revolt. And brought the republic almost to its knees so we're going to talk about that about caesar's role in it we're going to introduce a few other characters uh, pompey and crassus who i meant to get to today but we're not going to get to them today and uh we'll, we'll cover that next week then until next time see you then see you then